Crook was gone. He had resigned from his post as the top army official in Arizona and had headed towards newer, greener, less Apache-filled pastures. Some people were saddened by that, but most were elated. Of course, it's not like Arizona really ever appreciated the people who were in charge of dealing with the Apache. Remember that Crook had been brought in to replace General Orlando B. Wilcox, who, despite having a whole town named after him, had a mixed reputation in the territory. And Wilcox had been brought in to replace Colonel August Kautz, who was seen by most as being far too lackadaisical in his pursuit of marauding Indians. So, much like working at a company with a suspiciously high turnover rate, Arizonans must have been holding their breath about who the next guy in charge would be. The track record so far was definitely mixed, with Crook being the most effective of the lot, and settlers could barely stand him or his policies. But I have to believe that in April 1886, those settlers finally got the kind of army officer they were hoping for. A decorated war veteran, a passionate Indian fighter, and someone at least willing to play the political game. And though you can make arguments about his actual effectiveness and how much he built off of what Crook had already done, there is no disputing that General Nelson A. Miles is the man that will finally bring in Geronimo. Just don't expect it to happen right away. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 110, The Brave Peacock. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we watched as General Crook forwarded the good news of Geronimo's surrender to his superiors, only to be told that it wasn't good enough. And then Crook had to tell them that it didn't matter because Geronimo had escaped anyway. The back and forth over where Apache policy stood now led to Crook doing what he had threatened to do before. He resigned and gave up trying to wrangle the herd of cats that was the Chiricahua. General Philip Sheridan in Washington didn't seem to mind all that much, though, because he had just the fellow in mind to take over for Crook. So, now it is time to talk about General Miles. Nelson Appleton Miles was born August 8, 1839, in Westminster, Massachusetts. At the age of 22, he joined the U.S. Army as a volunteer in September 1861, after the breakout of the Civil War. He had a stellar career during the war, fighting at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, being wounded four times, and receiving the Medal of Honor for Gallantry at Chancellorsville. By October 1865, he had been appointed Major General of Volunteers at the young age of 26. For a time, he was the Commandant of Fort Monroe in Virginia, where he actually looked after the then-imprisoned ex-Confederate President Jefferson Davis. In 1866, Miles transferred over to the regular army with the rank of colonel, and in the decade and a half to come, he would play a major role in nearly every American campaign against the Amerindians on the Great Plains. After the disastrous Battle of Little Bighorn, 
which removed a rival in the form of Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer, Miles was part of the movement that forced the Lakota and Nez Perce tribes onto reservations. In 1880, he was promoted to the rank of Brigadier General and given successive commands over the Department of the Columbia and then the Department of the Missouri. As you can see, he's had quite the career and rise up the Army ladder, which you can attribute to a couple of reasons. The first is that he pursued advancement whenever possible. He had the fortune to marry the niece of William Tecumseh Sherman, who was also the niece of a powerful senator from Ohio. Though it should be said that he bombarded Sherman with personal letters, but found that the old general was not willing to dole out family favors. The second reason is that Miles was able to make friends, and powerful ones at that, whenever he needed to. One major in the army who had known both Miles and Crook said, quote, Miles wasn't so good a soldier as Crook, but he was possessed of more generosity, governed by warmer impulses, perhaps actuated by a shrewder worldly wisdom. Miles made friends who swore by him. Crook never made any, end quote. However, despite his ability to make friends, those friends found it easy to see that Miles was ambitious almost to a fault. He is described as being outspoken, pompous, arrogant, vain, and burdened with the knowledge that he was the best man for the job. President Theodore Roosevelt would describe Miles as a brave peacock. For several episodes now, we have seen Miles snipe at Crook and his policies from the sidelines, taking the same view as those in Washington that Crook needed to spend a little less time talking to the Chiricahua and a little more time crushing them into dust. As I mentioned, there was no love lost between the two generals, as they were both eyeing upward promotions that could only go to one or the other. And yet, in his autobiographies, because yes, there were two, Miles claims that he did not wish for the command to fight against the Apache and that, quote, it seemed a very undesirable duty and a most difficult undertaking, end quote. Of course, that didn't stop him from very loudly making his opinions known about what Crook was doing wrong and implying heavily that if he were there, everything would go so much better. And Sheridan seemed to agree with this last point, so in April 1886, he tapped Miles to come to Arizona and finally resolve the Apache problem once and for all. But Sheridan's endorsement also came with some very specific marching orders. The Army's top general told Miles that what was needed was, quote, vigorous operations by making active and prominent use of the regular troops, end quote. You'll note the emphasis on regular troops there, as Sheridan had always felt Crook was making a mistake by trusting in the Apache scouts. Both Sheridan and Secretary of War William C. Endicott had written reports where they straight out said that the scouts were useful to capture or induce the hostile Apaches to come in, but that they couldn't be trusted to fight or to kill them. This is so plainly and obviously wrong, but it still was a widespread belief. Miles just happened to hold these same opinions, so he had no problem following Sheridan's orders. Besides, this was a chance for him to shine, and to succeed where his rival Crook had failed. 
He was going to prove that there was nothing to bringing in these last few savages, and that the army was more than up for the task. To be fair to Miles, he had been made a general for a reason. He instantly got to work devising a new plan to end the endless war with the hostiles once and for all. On April 20th, he issued General Orders No. 7, which outlined the strategy moving forward. First and foremost, the soldiers were back in charge. The army would still use Apache scouts, but only as trackers, not as fighters. And they would only use quote-unquote reliable scouts, which basically meant cutting off any Apache from the Chiricahua and White Mountain bands, so basically axing anyone who actually knew their enemy. Under Miles's framework, the cavalry would be used for scouting and pursuing hostiles when they appeared. Infantry would occupy strategic mountain passes and watering holes, escort supply trains, and protect storage depots. To comply with Sheridan's orders for vigorous operations, Miles turned to Captain Henry Lawton, a Civil War veteran and decorated officer known for his energy and vigor, especially when it came to fighting Amerindians. Lawton was to be the commander of what we today would term a strike force, a small, mobile, and effective team designed to pursue the enemy. And he was aided by Assistant Surgeon Leonard Wood, an athletic graduate of Harvard who had long desired to be a commissioned officer. And let me tell you, I'm having a very hard time not picturing Bones McCoy from Star Trek. Leading a team of 35 cavalrymen, 20 infantrymen, and 20 scouts, Lawton and Wood both saw themselves as, in Wood's words, the right kind of white man to bring Geronimo and everyone with him to heal. And I'll let you read in between the lines of what that statement meant. But anytime new management takes over, they have to distinguish themselves from what the last guy was doing. I mean, just deploying troops alone wasn't going to be enough, right? Many of the histories you'll read about Miles' time in Arizona make a big to-do about the fact that he set up a series of hilltop observation stations that the Signal Corps outfitted with telescopes to spot the enemy and heliographs so that they could inform other stations. And in case you were wondering, heliographs are just mirrors set up so you can reflect sunlight, generally to send messages via Morse code. And Miles gets full points for ingenuity here, because on paper, this is a great idea. It sets up a better surveillance network than existed under Crook, and it could give quick communication among the rugged territory of southern Arizona. Unfortunately, historian Edwin R. Sweeney points out the two inconvenient facts that for most of the life of these stations, the Chiricahua were based in Mexico and not Arizona, so the enemy was essentially not around to be spotted. And when they were in Arizona, which Nightshade and Geronimo are about to do, they traveled at night, which kind of hits at the heliograph's greatest weakness. Still, like I said, full points for ingenuity. In a matter of weeks, Miles had successfully implemented his soldier-based system. But it needs to be pointed out that before he set up this system, he actually did try to take a page out of Crook's book. In fact, he floated a suggestion that originally came from the Chiricahua scouts. 
Miles proposed sending two prominent Chiricahua that the rebels would trust, one of them being Ulsana, to talk them into giving up. The only problem is that both the men he wanted to send had been shipped off to Florida a couple weeks beforehand. So Miles wrote to Sheridan to have them shipped back so they could act as his emissaries. Sheridan shot down this plan immediately. It was way too similar to what Crook would have proposed, and there was no way he was sending Usana, who had terrorized Arizona and New Mexico for months, back to his homeland. Sweeney also makes an interesting point that, no matter how well thought out and effective Miles' strategy was, it was still dependent on what his foes did rather than what he did. If Geronimo and Nietzsche decided to stay in the Sierra Madres, then they could have dragged the war on for years. Miles had few officers, and because of the exclusion of the Chiricahua and White Mountain Apache, no scouts that knew the territory or how to best strike at the enemy in Mexico. Crook might have been confident about being able to ferret out the renegades from the mountains, but under Miles, no one really liked those odds. So I guess that means we need to take a look at what the renegades were doing. When they took off on March 31st, 1886, Geronimo and Nietzsche had no idea what they had just started. They couldn't know that they had basically set up the dominoes just right so that it would force out Crook, the one guy who would actually give them the best deal possible. And they definitely had no way of knowing that Crook was now gone, replaced with the more aggressive Miles. So, fearing that Crook would be right on their tail with his dogged scouts, the pair fled west to get quickly back into the Sierra Madres. But since they didn't know that dominoes were falling all around them and that the situation was rapidly changing, they decided to carry on business as usual. And that meant, you guessed it, it's time to raid and pillage among the Mexicans some more. I think it's fair to say that Geronimo and Nietzsche spent most of the month of April 1886 just riding around Sonora and being themselves. And they left a lot of bodies on the ground and a lot of livestock stolen. That is until April 27th when they decided to take their act on tour in southern Arizona again. They struck at Calabasas along the Santa Cruz River before heading northwest and finding the ranch owned by Artisan L. Peck. Now, Peck and a neighbor were not at home at this time, having left that very morning to find some stray livestock. Unfortunately, that left Peck's pregnant wife, a baby, and a niece at home by themselves. And what happens is one of those incidents that reminds you why these settlers feared the Apache so much and even welcomed the thought of their extermination. Because alerted to some issue outside by the family's dogs, Peck's wife went out to check, only to be shot and instantly killed by one of the Apache raiding party. The warrior then picked up the baby and, I'm sorry for the graphic details, swung it by its legs, bashing its head on the wall. Peck's niece, Trinidad Verdon, watched all of this in horror and ran into the house, trying to hide underneath one of the beds. However, she was found by the Apache as they raided the ranch house and was dragged outside. It's possible that they were going to kill her too, but Geronimo intervened and she was put on the back of a horse instead. Next comes a rather odd coda to this incident. 
Shortly after leaving the scene of the crime, the raiding party came across none other than Peck and his companion as they were lassoing a stray bull. Neither man was armed, but the sound of gunshots and bullets ricocheting off the nearby rocks let him know that they were not alone anymore. The Apache descended on them, shooting Peck's companion in the neck, instantly killing him, and Peck's horse was shot out from underneath him, and he soon found himself captured and in the middle of a circle of very determined-looking Apache warriors. One of these warriors apparently spoke English, and introduced Peck to none other than Geronimo. The wily old renegade, who had fled from peace talks a month ago and spent the last few weeks running around causing all sorts of trouble, took in this man whose family his men had just finished murdering. Peck's niece was there, tied up on the back of a horse, though the Apache would not let her and her uncle speak. Peck must have been scared out of his wits, but that's not what Geronimo was looking at. Because the rancher had rolled up the sleeves of his shirt while working, exposing the fact that he was wearing the long-sleeved red flannel underwear that you've seen in every Western film, or parody of a Western film, or Bugs Bunny cartoon parody of a Western film. And for some reason, this long red underwear made Geronimo a little giddy. Through the translator, he addressed Peck as Mangus Coloradas, a kind of ironic joke as the name of the great chief Mangus Coloradas literally translated to red sleeves. Telling Peck that he was a good man, Geronimo spared his life, though he did strip him down to nothing but that red flannel underwear, and took his boots before leaving. There really is no explaining why Geronimo spared Peck. I mean, he had just killed his companion right in front of him, and his pregnant wife and baby just before that. I will also note for the record that I do think that killing a baby and a pregnant woman does qualify them for the quote-unquote special hell that Shepard Book warned us about. But the point is, they were not squeamish about taking human life. There have been some attempts to armchair psychoanalyze Geronimo's thought process here, but really he's the only one who could say why he spared Peck's life that day. Maybe it was something as simple as the red sleeves making him smile, but we'll never really know. With the Apache raiding in Arizona, it was a foregone conclusion that the cavalry would be going after them. Just days after sparing Peck, Geronimo and his men continued heading south, slipping below the U.S. border near Nogales once again, but they were now aware that they were being followed. K-Troop of the 10th Cavalry was on their trail, pursuing the Apache with vigor and only about a day behind. After ensuring that the women and children with them were safe, the Chiricahua warriors decided to set an ambush for their pursuers inside of a rocky canyon. Whether the cavalry actually stepped into this ambush depends on who's telling the story. Some sources say that K-Troop fell right into the trap, but was able to extricate itself, while others say that they proceeded so cautiously that it kept casualties to a minimum. What we do know is that the cavalrymen entered the canyon, engaged the Chiricahua, and lost one soldier while another was wounded. However, the Chiricahua, which is only the fighting men, so just about 16 warriors, were able to get away. The cavalry wasn't just going to give up, though, and, bolstered by reinforcements, kept up the pursuit. 
However, though they were joined by Kirk and McCoy, oops, sorry, Captain Lawton and Surgeon Leonard Wood, the Chiricahua remained safely out of reach. With the Americans striking out, it was now the Mexicans' turn, and a National Guard unit out of Magdalena found and struck against the Apache on May 11th. But these would walk into an ambush and have to pull back, and a second wave later that day were also repulsed by the Apache. Based on what happens next, Sweeney says that Geronimo, Nietzsche, and the other Chiricahua with them clearly had two basic goals. The first was survival, while the second was to see what options might still be available for them since leaving the talks nearly two months earlier. To accomplish that second goal, Nietzsche decided to split off from Geronimo and head north back into Arizona, though that was easier said than actually done. The territory was already on high alert due to both Miles' new soldier deployment and the fact that the Apache put everyone on notice just a couple weeks earlier with their vicious attack on the Peck Ranch. So the Apache spent time probing along the U.S.-Mexico border, looking for a good place for Nietzsche and the people with him to cross. This turned into a multi-day strike counterstrike with U.S. soldiers as both sides spied and then tried to get the upper hand against the other. Finally, a small diversionary force was sent to the Mule Mountains to stir up some trouble, while Geronimo and Nietzsche again tested the waters further to the west. Here again, they found themselves tailed by Lawton and his strike force, who were always just a day behind them, forcing the Apache to keep moving. And though the Apache had no way of knowing this, the Big Cheese himself was also close by. Miles had decided to set up shop at Calabasas, though he sometimes worked out of Nogales and even Fort Huachuca during this part of the campaign. And here we also have to give the devil his due because during all this back and forth along the border, the cavalry really held its own. Without scouts guiding them, they had managed to follow the Apache through jagged mountain ranges and inhospitable desert, making sure their foe could not rest. This goes to show you that maybe Crook did rely on scouts a little too much, and that regular soldiers could, you know, do the job too. With the diversionary force off to the east, and accounting for one desertion that took place, the hostiles now included 34 individuals. Geronimo had decided that he wasn't going to leave Mexico until he could get a deal he liked from an officer he trusted, so he headed south again with five others and the captive, Trinidad Verdon. Meanwhile, Nietzsche took the remaining 27 Apache and went to fulfill his mission. They said goodbye to Geronimo and headed northeast, hoping to link up with the diversionary force and then head to their final destination, Fort Apache. It's a little unclear what their exact objective was once they reached there, but it could be that they were going to try and make contact with Crook to see what kind of deal was still available to them. Spoiler alert, no deal because Crook is gone. But it's not exactly like they went on this mission in the spirit of peace. Over the course of 18 days in Arizona, they wound up killing 13 people. Though Nietzsche was more level-headed than Geronimo and not quite as eager for war, he would later tell Crook, quote, we were afraid. It was war. Anybody who saw us would kill us, and we did the same thing. End quote. 
And I really think that one statement sums up the Apache Wars pretty darn well. Nietzsche and his party jumped from mountain range to mountain range, going from the Santa Ritas to the Whetstones to the Rincones to the Winchesters. And at some point, he sent half of his men and all of the women and children back into Mexico as he made a beeline toward Fort Apache. So, anyone with a map could plot Nietzsche's course. So the only question remaining was what to do about it. Down at Calabasas, Miles was under the impression that Nietzsche must be heading toward the location of his fellow Chiricahua in order to drop off his wounded and to recruit new warriors to his cause. This conclusion parroted what the press was shouting constantly, but just because it was prevalent didn't mean it was right. Miles was working off of a biased attitude that told him every Chiricahua was a potential rebel, and that surely the reservation was one bad day away from erupting into flames. He simply couldn't conceive that all the Apache that were going to break out had already broken out, and that the scouts had legitimately wanted to bring the renegades in, not join them on their raiding spree. Working off of these faulty assumptions, Miles made two moves. The first was almost crook-esque, as he wired San Carlos to ask if there was anyone there that would be willing to go to Geronimo's camp and try to get him to surrender. And the response was quick. No, not really. Remember that the Chiricahua and the White Mountain Apache, the ones who really knew Geronimo and would have some sort of motivation to talk to him, were all up at Fort Apache. San Carlos was where all the other bands were being kept. They hadn't broken out of the reservation, and they really didn't want to bother with the hostile Chiricahua still running around Mexico. This left Miles with no choice but to hold his nose and wire up to Fort Apache to ask if there was someone there who'd be willing to go to Geronimo's camp. The reply came back a bit slower this time, but the answer was the same. No, not really. The commander at Fort Apache had asked around the Chiricahua chiefs, but no one felt inclined to head down south to go after Geronimo. So Miles would now have to rely on the soldiers he prized so much to force the renegades to surrender. The second thing Miles did was almost predictable, but that still didn't make it any more pretty. He offered a $2,000 bounty on Geronimo's head, dead or alive, with an additional $50 for any of his warriors. He also told one of his captains who was down in Mexico that he should offer the Mexican soldiers the same deal, $4 a day for their help and $2,000 if they were able to nab Geronimo himself. Finally, he wired San Carlos that they should feel free to, quote, offer them any reasonable reward for Geronimo's capture, end quote. The War Department later condemned these bounties, though it's not like they hadn't been used before, but everyone else seemed to line up behind this idea. Arizona's delegate to Congress even suggested raising the bounty on Geronimo's head to a whopping $25,000. But my favorite thing to come out of these discussions is the suggestion that came from the American South. What Arizona really needed was... Georgia bloodhounds to sniff the hostiles out wherever they were hiding. As one advocate stated, quote, 
These dogs make no mistakes and will stay on the trail day and night until they overtake their game. End quote. I'm actually kind of sad this suggestion, though delightfully impractical, never went anywhere. Alright, so during May 1886, rumors were swirling around everywhere and Miles waited for Nietzsche to arrive at Fort Apache. On the single day of May 24th, Miles and his commander sent back and forth 14 telegrams about the situation. Sadly, these messages tell us that Miles still clung to the notion that the reservation Apache were still somehow just waiting for the right moment to revolt. He could just not conceive that maybe their sympathies didn't lie with the hostiles after all. One report told him that Nietzsche was heading toward Eskimosin, the old Aravipa chief, who had been quite the troublemaker back in his day. Even though this was not the case anymore, San Carlos still dispatched someone to go watch Eskimosin plowing his field. Consequently, the old chief was also carrying a rifle with him just in case the hostile Chiricahua did show up. Another report repeated the old line that Nietzsche surely must be heading toward the Navajo reservation to find recruits there. So Colonel Luther Bradley up on the Navajo reservation was put on alert to watch out for the Chiricahua. In reality, Geronimo and Nietzsche were hard-pressed to find any allies or even sympathizers across all of Arizona and New Mexico. As we'll see, even Nietzsche's own mother would prove unsympathetic to her son's plight. But that is a story we'll get into next week. Speaking of next week, our attention will turn to Nietzsche reaching Fort Apache, only to have to turn around again. And the scene of action returns to Mexico as Lawton and his strike force tries to make a beeline straight for Geronimo. But if wishing only made it so. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.